Hello, everybody. My name is Christoph. I'm an early member of the Football Collective. And today I want to introduce um, a book by Uli Hesse called Tor, the story of German football, which to date is the only comprehensive and concise history of German football in the English language. And um, the book has been a vital part of my PhD research, which I did at the Montfort University in Leicester, where I looked at um, English and German media representations of the English and German football national teams. And um, Sorry, when, when did you pick the book up first? Uh, I actually can't say. It must, be around, must have been around 2009, 2010. That was the first edition that um, was published in 2002. And a few years later, uh, there was a new edition, revised and updated, 2013. And this is a book that I just came back to so often during my PhD, because if you want to have a greater look at German football history, this is the starting point. It goes back to the very beginning. Um, this new edition goes right to 2013. It hasn't any feature on the Champions League final 2013, I think. No, it hasn't. It finishes about 2011. Um, but nonetheless, there's 10 years additional. And in, in, in this 10 years, from 2002 to 2011-12, you have so much happening in German football. You have the basically the reinvention and of German football and quite some quite spectacular performances at the 2010 World Cup. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very good book to, to go back to regularly if you want to look at the national team, if you want to look at the European Cup, at the, in the introduction of the Bundesliga in the 1960s. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great source book and a good starting point for a deeper research into German football history. That's what I say. And what makes it so good? Is it the detail with which uh, is it to do with the fact that it's so comprehensive or is it to do with uh, Hesse's style himself? I also have read a lot, lot that he's written uh, at for, what's it called, ESPN, where he's had a regular column on German football. And it's his style of writing. It's, it's a detail. It's basically, it's a whole package. You can't put a finger on a certain point and say that's because that's the reason that's the reason because or why it's so good why I come back to it so often it's the whole thing you, you have everything you have a good it's easy to read there's a great statistics section at the end um, and it covers quite a lot there's a few sections that haven't been included for instance there's no section on women's football um, there's no proper investigation into the 2006 corruption bribery scandal of the 2006 World Cup in Germany. Um, so, and also it lacks a bit of uh, migration of the new look of the uh, German national team. So there's a few topics that he's left out, but I, understandably, he's just um, revised his first, the first edition of this book. Had he chosen to do to include all this, this would have been a whole new book, a whole new story.
Yeah, it would have been a complete brick of a book, wouldn't it? Yes. So it's a, it's a different book, actually. Um, if you include women's football in that, um, because there's so much politics in there. Um, if you include a proper or a deeper deeper research into the uh, area of between 1933-1945, um, there has been a book in German on that topic, on that period alone. So um, start, including all this would, have been, would mean to write a new book. And could you um, tell us what the significance of the of the phrase Tor is in the title? Because I believe it's it's Germany's equivalent of uh, they think it's all over. Tor means goal, and so that's the exclamation when a team scores a goal. Um, and there was in the old radio days there was a radio conference in every Bundesliga stadium. I, I, I think it still exists. But someone was talking and reported from a game, and then you hear from the off a little voice screaming, Tor! <laughs> and then immediately um, the broadcast swapped stadium, and the commenter, and you hear a different voice, a different uh, crowd uh, screaming, and maybe the commentator repeats Tor, and then um, saying who scored for whom, etc., and tell the new score, and tell something about the goal itself. It is a it's a it's a radio institution. You on a Saturday afternoon between from three thirty in the afternoon just until five thirty. So the main Bundesliga matches. The, the Saturday has been reduced to now five matches between that time. I think I think there's a game later, two games on Saturday, Monday, Friday. So, well, people familiar with the Premier League will know what what that yeah. means. And, and there are five games between in that time, and you have just people screaming in the radio, and it's it's popular. And the last ten minutes of of the games, there's no music, there's no radio program. The people are just inside the stadium, so you have basically the atmosphere from several German radio uh, football stadiums in the, coming through the radio. And wasn't sorry, wasn't it also? Um, wasn't that wasn't Tor shouted whenever Germany won the fifty four World Cup? Wasn't there a radio commentary where um, uh, yes. Zimmerman shouts? Is it Herbert Zimmerman shouts Tor for the second goal whenever you won the World Cup? For the third goal, yes, he yeah. he's, um, screamed Tor Tor. Uh, I think three or four times, and he was off his head at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so this is another instance where the the, the, the exclamation "Tor" has a particular meaning in German football history and German football conscience, so to say. It is very important. But if you look at if you or if you listen to the '66 World Cup final broadcast, it's a whole different affair. Herbert Zimmerman was was opposite. His uh, successor in '66 at Wembley uh, was called Audi Michel, and he exclaimed, "Just talk," and that was it. Talk. It's, it's completely different, and he, it, that, that exclamation of "talk" was followed by several seconds of silence. There was he, he did not say he did not dare say anything. It's completely different. You, if you have a chance, if you have time, just. Compare those two uh, moments 
the 54 World Cup final and the 66 World Cup final in Germany. And do you, you remark the difference between the two? It's incredible. If you think about the history of German football, German football has been able to reinvent itself much more successfully, episodically, than, for instance, English football has ever done. What do you put that down to? Well, I would say it's it's the capacity or the capability of introspection, of really yeah, looking at what went wrong, what goes wrong, and what could be done to correct it. I think that's... We, in our living memory, have experienced that in um, 2002, 2004. Yeah, 2002, Germany reached the World Cup final, finished runners-up to Brazil, and were actually the better team. But still, in 2004, they crashed out of the group stage at the Euro 2004. Um, After that, there there was that soul-searching process. And I think they, they hardly left any stones unturned. And I think... This, this, this capacity, this cap- capability to thoroughly research or look into things, why it went wrong, what do we need to do, um, that's the main difference, particularly between English and the German football uh, setup. I mean, the, the French do it, they have a similar system to the German system. I don't know what, I don't know anything about Spain or Italy, but particularly in Germany, they have they have done a soul-searching after the 66 World Cup final because they want to know why did we only finish runners-up. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then in 2004-2005, they had <clears throat> they just just did the same. And th- then it was so, so necessary, so, so very important to do that. Otherwise, well, we don't know what would have happened but certainly wouldn't have gone for the better. And the 2006, 2010 and 14 World Cups wouldn't have been as successful as they have been. You, know, you mentioned that your PhD work uh, you looked at, uh, and our research, you looked at the representations of the national side and of football by the, the mainstream media. How do they differ from the British model to the German model or vice versa? Well, it's, it's the press system, the media system that is so different that, leads to the differences in re- in coverage. Germany, there's a, I think most people still have um, a su- subscription to uh, a, day, a local or regional newspaper, may, maybe even a national newspaper, so they don't need to go to their news agent and experience a daily bombardment of headlines as they do in England or in Britain. They just have their paper delivered to their post box every morning and they have their paper for their breakfast and that's that's one of the reasons why the coverage is so i'm not saying it's calm but it's, it's more moderate and it's not as screaming and um, noisy as for instance daily mail and daily express etc but it, it's, a, it's a structure and also in london or in england you have the press i don't know concentrated in one place it used yeah. to be fleet street i don't know where it's now uh, Germany has there's a huge, well, a big newspaper coming from Munich. There's a couple of newspapers coming from Frankfurt. Uh, there's few, one from Hamburg and one from Berlin. So you have four metropolitan centres, and they all have a different outlook, and they look at look differently at things. So 
that, that that's one of the differences. In London, it's all compressed in one place. In Germany, it's spread out. It's decentralized. Germany has a subscription model. I think more than 80 people, 80% of German people have a subscription of at least one daily newspaper. And I don't know how what, what, the, what the percentage is in the UK or and England in particular, but it's probably far less than 80%. Yeah, and if you go back to the history of British newspapers and the fact that they started off, you know, as the kind of you know broadside sellers and those types of uh, publication and pamphlet in you know the city of London in the late seventeenth, but really the the eighteenth century, a popular form of imperial jingoistic patriotism was central to how they sold papers right from the very start, and that's persisted throughout the history of British newspapers, which I suppose you don't get if you are based on a provincial or a federalist model? Yeah. Um, well, I'm not saying there's no such thing in German newspaper. There is. If you look at, well, there's only one tabloid in Germany. It's called Bild Zeitung. And um, they are e easily accusable of, well, jingoism, xenophobia, even outright racism. But it's... But this is one tabloid in Germany where you have, I don't know, the sun, you have the sun, the sun on Sunday, you have Daily Star, Daily Express, you have four or five of those tabloids using similar language and, well, focusing on one or two target groups. And therefore you have a, a wider spread of such jingoistic content. <clears throat> do you think that has? Do you think that that that, that 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 the talk and the chatter and the dialogue and discourse around like that around the national team leads to uh, certain managers being appointed and uh, a certain inability to uh, perhaps investigate fully and honestly in the way that the Germans have the feelings of the national organisation? I, I I can't say. I mean. In that respect, England has been has made more progress because Germany always had German national coach. There has never been um, like England with Fabio Capello or with what was his Ericsson. Ben Ericsson. German football always had someone from the inside to to coach the national team. It may have been. There may have been points where it would have been better to look outside. I don't know. Maybe in the future there there will be someone from Portugal or England or France coaching the national team. But but it certainly helped that German football has or looks regularly inside inside the, its own system to find ways to improve, get better, to get back to the proper game. Yeah, because you know, I wonder, you know, if you think, remember famously the 1996 uh, Piers Morgan inspired Daily Mirror front page where Britain once yeah. again displayed its World War II Tourette's and its inability yeah. to see history as anything other than, you know, a, a prison of war camp kind of movie. Yeah. Yeah. That same kind of reversion to type, a kind of, you know, it can be of no kind of it can be no, uh, it can't, can't be luck that Britain remade Dad's Army 
in 2016, the year that it left the European Union. Uh, and that kind of, you know, legacy of World War II, uh, well, a certain British kind of imperial nostalgia, is something that suffuses how the popular press covers the national football team a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, without having much reason, really. I mean, um, uh, is it true that that's army had a was re reintroduced in twenty sixteen? Yeah, there was there was there was a cinema remake of Dad's Army in twenty sixteen, which starred no. Bill Nye and Toby Jones and a host of. Britain's most <laughs> best loved stars. You no, know, I, I don't think it's chance that that happened, Christoph. You know, uh, I, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> they can't have planned it that way. But it says something about the fact that it's always kind of there in the back of their mind. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it... I appreciate that as a German and an Irish man, we may not be won't be making these conversations public in the era of Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I see. I've, I've looked at a few episodes of Death Army. I, I find it funny, but seriously, I, oh, I can't imagine having something similar in Germany. I mean, and why would there be a need to have a cinema remake of this? I mean, oh, yeah, it's just looking backwards and ignoring what's happening around you, is it? Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Kind of. And it's, in my opinion, it's epitomised by the current prime British Prime Minister and his entourage and people around him. I think they all want to go. They, they'd be happy to go back to the twenties or I don't know, just to have their empire back and be left alone by the Europeans. I think the interesting thing, I, I know we talked off mic there about Raphael Honigstein's Das Reboot. Uh, you haven't particularly read it, but you haven't read it. But one of the things that I found really interesting was it was the embracing of the new Germans, of Germans of a Turkish background. Uh, you know, the, the sons of immigrants was something yeah. that was really important in the in the resetting of, of German football and the success of the last decade. Uh-huh. Is that something you think that's going to be sustainable or can be sustained? Is that something that is set in place now? Um, yeah, I do believe that. I mean, it's you can't deny it. There are so many people with a migration background in Germany that play good football. And I, I do believe that there will be always people playing for the German national team or play a significant role at their club, coming from maybe born in Turkey or I don't know where, and play good football, become German citizens and play football in Germany. It is certainly sustainable and I think it's important. I mean, it's just a reflection of society and it's, it's incredible that it has taken so long for Germany to accept this because there have been in the in the 60s 50 from the 50s onwards there have been people migrating to germany for work reasons initially for work reasons because there was a shortage of labor force and they stayed so for talking about 50 60 years that germany has or is a society of with a huge 
part of portion of migrants and they have now become German citizens and so deny that and not having them within the national team would be would be a denial of, of um, social reality um, the, the first ones I don't know who was the first player of African origin uh, um, or Polish origin but you can't deny it they have the the area of um, the rural area in the west of Germany, there have been Polish immigrants for more than 100 years. And why would why should they not represent their teams, their national teams? I mean, for us, it's particularly for me, it seems logic. But I and I don't understand why people haven't seen this previously, why it has been ignored or neglected for so long. Yeah, I mean, I I think back to 1998 um, when France won the World Cup, and one of the first things that was posited was that this was a triumph of multiculturalism and a triumph of of the more can be you know, accredited to the migrants, where you had you had Algerians and Tunisians and people from the Basque Country and and people from yeah. the Caribbean and people from from other parts of the French imperial legacy, and it's interesting yeah. that the countries that have really embraced that and. Uh, have have been the most successful in the last two decades. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah. Although there there is always the 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 undertone that in Germany and in France that uh, a national team that has people of color playing is not the real national team because it's because there are people who think that. The national team should be all white and no people of color in there. And that, but that's rubbish. I think in that respect, the 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 women were even further ahead than the men. They had, without a doubt, um, Miroslav Klose was the first. Well, I, that's the first example that comes to mind. Yeah, he's uh, of Polish origin, but. Um, the women have been further ahead. They had people from North Africa, the the Balkans, etc., already integrated before even there was talk about Mesut Özil playing for Germany, etc., etc. So again, they were a bit the women were a bit bit ahead of um, the men in that respect. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point there, Christoph, which is that, that, that migration doesn't mean people from Africa or people necessarily of different cultures or different religions. The history of political upheaval in, in mainland Europe also has to take into account the shattering of of countries with great football cultures like the Balkans. You know, you think about yeah. what happened to the old Yugoslavia. You know, yeah. I thought it was really point. I thought it was really interesting. It was the last major tournament whenever Switzerland, uh, two Swiss players, including, was it... Uh, Oh, it was a Granite Jacker and mm. Shakiri. Shakiri, yeah, Shakiri, it is. You know, they they drew attention to their. So part part of the, the the issue of migration isn't the idea that there's some kind of residual shame that you have people of color or whatever coming into your country. It's it's almost unavoidable to take those people because of the nature of political upheaval on the continent over the last twenty five years. Yeah, it's true. It's it's yeah, I fully agree with you and. And I repeat myself, why why has it taken so long for German football to accept this and to embrace that? 
I mean, this is a significant. It's a it's a significant group of society, and um, we've seen this with Mesut Özil and other players. They can bring so much to any football, any sport, not just football, but any sport. And why? And including them, but just you know, plain stupid. <laughs> 